This is Strange Assembly episode 161, Unlimited. Okay, I, I have to ask you guys, I was playing Hearthstone just before we started recording. There is something now in my battle net that is labeled Heroes of the Storm. Yep. I watched the cinematic trailer, and clearly it's something related to Heart with to uh, StarCraft. Having watched the trailer for this game, I have no idea what the game is. It is a MOBA. Yeah, Yeah, essentially a Dota clone, but they're called MOBAs generally. And it's not just StarCraft, it's everything they put out. One of the next characters they're going to put out is the the Lost Vikings, which is one of their Super Nintendo games. Okay, so that's why there were demons. I so that was just a Diablo. That was actually just a Diablo demon, not a. No, 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 that was Diablo. You can play as Diablo. Okay, and what's a MOBA? It is a typically a five-on-five PvP game where you have objectives. So it actually started from Dota, which was basically the same thing. And you remember you have the base in Warcraft Three. Sorry, Dota is a mod of Warcraft Three. That, if you'll remember Warcraft 3, the big thing that it added to the RTS genre was that it um, had your heroes, which played almost like RPG characters, because you could select skills, and they were persist, and they would, like, regen or whatever, and you could actually get equipment for them. Sure. So that that was a big thing that added. So somebody took a mod and said, you know what, the heroes are the most interesting thing, so I'm going to automate all of the units so that they go and attack each other, and you're just leveling up your heroes, and we each control one hero rather than potentially two or three. And then the whole idea is to push your opponent's lanes and destroy their base. Which is, that's why it shares so many commonalities with an RTS, is it's basically just a modification of the RTS. But it's very popular. So when you say lanes, that, that brings to mind what people say about League of Legends, or...? Yes, League of Legends is also a MOBA. Okay. Uh, it is also a Dota clone. And uh, I am Chris Stevenson, and the fact that Mike had to explain that to me demonstrates why this is a tabletop gaming podcast yeah. and not a video gaming podcast. Uh, there actually is a board game that, the pirate theme one, from Cool Mini or not, the one that was just on Kickstarter. I think it's like pirates and plunder. I, I can't remember. I can't remember exactly, unfortunately, what the name of the game was. Yeah, you say cool mini or not right now, and I think recent cool mini or not Arcadia Quest, but that was recently published, not recently kickstarted. So right. So that's Mike Cook. Boba this other guy was Jay Earl. Hi. And before we completely drown me in, in more follow up on the game. This is Strange Assembly, a, like I said, tabletop gaming podcast. You can just check us out at strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. But I, I had just done that, and I was kind of puzzled that I had... Like, it just did not tell me what it is. And I didn't know if it was one of these things where it was just assumed that everybody who has a Battle.net account already knows what this is, or... Uh, well, I mean, League of Legends is one of the largest video games around anymore. And yes, but that doesn't the, mean that Chris would know that's what it is. No, I'm not saying. I'm not saying that. The trailer didn't have any gameplay in it. It was like, yeah. it, it was actually. I'm like, oh, this is like watching a Final Fantasy cinematic. Yeah, but I mean, that's what Blizzard yeah, cinematics always are. Yeah. There's definitely some weird marketing going on there. That's for sure. Well, well, because uh, the trailer is almost never going to sell you on the game. Well, I mean, 
that's just the cinematic trailer. That's what makes you say, huh, I want to see what this game's about. And it's a bunch of people fighting, which is basically what the MOBA is. And right, I guess they've succeeded in that now there's a podcast episode where we're talking about their thing. What You know what the big deal about that is? No. <laughs> well, so, so the game has been in some form of release in technical alpha, which nobody knows what the heck that even means. Technical which, alpha means technically it's a beta, but... Uh... It, basically, but they only they only invited completely random people, and it's been out since, like, July? I mean, it's been out for forever, and so literally last week they went into closed beta, which didn't do anything at first, but then today it was actually announced that you can buy one of the bundles that's available to everybody. For the same price, it's available to everybody, but it'll actually get you into the game, whereas before it was just completely random chance, or you had to know someone at Blizzard. Roman Crossbones, the newest Kickstarter from Cool Mini or Not, it is inspired by uh, MOBAs. So, okay. there you go. Yeah, that's like I, I keep looking at board games that are inspired by tower defense games, and, like, it yeah, has a yeah, jet. Yeah, always, always obnoxious, just because, you know, part of the what you can do with a video game is let the computer take care of things, which you can't do in a board game. Ah, well. Yeah. So... Let's go straight to some board games. We're going to try to rush through these in the way that only I can't. So first up, Mysterium from Portal Games. Now, as far as I'm aware, this is not actually out in English, so don't rush out and try to find it at your local game store. It's going to be released in English, and hopefully they won't cartoony up the art too much, but Mysterium is kind of a cross between Dixit and Clue. And the generalities of the setup are that, which is a fully cooperative game, one character is a ghost, and everyone else is an investigator trying to solve a murder. And the ghost knows what happened, and knows what all of the investigators are looking for, but the ghost can only communicate with the investigators by sending them dreams. So the player who is the ghost has all the information, but they can only communicate by giving cards to the players with pictures of art on them. And each player is looking at a row of... the of seven cards for whatever kind of thing it is they're looking for. I say it's like Clue because you have to get the murderer and the murder location and the murder weapon. Each player is looking for their particular combination and the ghost knows what it is. So in a given round, the ghost will have, say, seven cards in their hand and will give one card to each of the players and then each of the players looking at their card and looking at the seven items that are available, at least in the, the first round, possible locations, say they're, they're trying to figure out what the location is, and they'll choose one, and then the ghost can say as to, to each character whether or not yes or no, and that's it, whether or not they made the correct choice. And that goes on for at most six rounds. If everybody hasn't figured out what they need by the end of the sixth night, then you're going to lose, because you have to win on the seventh day, which is when Every investigator will then have their set of what they think the location and murderer and murder weapon was, and the ghost has to give 
clues with the cards to let the group as a whole figure out which of these is correct. I thought it was pretty cool. I don't anticipate um, ever being any good at it because I never really do very well with the games that are like try to figure out why the other guy has put down this card, which is why I, for example, loathe apples to apples. But it's pretty cool. You're going to have to work a little bit to get it right now. It's I was released by Portal Games in Poland, I think. There are Ukrainian rules. Well, I mean, you can go online and get an English translation, but that is Mysterium. Now, Mike, I think that you've uh, finally rectified our podcast deficiency and not have none of us having played Imperial Assault yet. Yeah, I uh, rectify that real hard. <laughs> Not exactly sure what drove me, probably just because Star Wars is cool. I ended up picking up Imperial Assault, and I took it to a friend's, and we did a two-player. We didn't do the PvP. We did the, I guess, PvE, even though it's still PvP. We didn't do the, um, gosh, what do I want to say? We didn't do the teams. I did the Dungeon Master. He played two characters that got buffed. Yeah, you, you didn't do the skirmish. You did the Descent style. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So... If you've played Descent, you've essentially played Imperial Assault in that mode. Not to say there aren't differences, but they're not even major enough for me to necessarily go over. The biggest thing when you're playing with uh, less than four people is that you get some kind of buff that essentially gives you another action point, and you will also get a type of buff depending on how many there are. So there's one for two, and there's one for three, and essentially it's everybody gets more hit points or gets some other card that's really, really good. So generally, it actually moved pretty quickly. I was actually fairly surprised by that because I expected it would move a little bit slower than it did. It was about 50-50. It was pretty fun. Played about four missions, so that's probably maybe like a third of the way through a campaign, and that took us probably seven or eight hours, I want to say. And probably five of that was just doing the first three. So there was maybe like an hour uh, or so for each mission until we hit the last mission, mission, which was this big map, and it had area control. I don't want to spoil too much because part of this is you you go to the map depending on how well you did in the last one. So we went to the big map. You know, This is one of the ones that I don't know if you always are going to hit it, but I'm imagining that at like the fourth or fifth mission, it's going to be like one of the big maps. Um, and we were going to wrap up for the day. I was like, okay, this will be a pretty good time. And that <laughs> kind of took forever. But it was because it was like an area control. I had to have his people out of a certain number of tiles while I had Imperial troops. I, I played the Imperials. Um, and it got more and more ridiculous to the point where at turn seven or eight, which is the, the last turn, Darth Vader shows up. And you're just like, what is going on? But he still won. And he actually won by holding out to a certain round, which I didn't even realize. But anyways. We found a problem because there's nothing that says you can't double rest, and in this game, the one probably significant change is that you have health and you have stamina like you do in Descent, and you can use stamina for all the things you could use it for in Descent. But the difference is when you rest, you actually have a value that you can rest for, and if it goes over how much stamina you have you have like left, you actually heal for that amount. So what he was doing was double resting, and I couldn't do enough damage to his Jedi, who was defensive-focused, to actually kill him or to knock him out. He just kind of stood there with, like, 30 stormtroopers 
that's exaggerating, but it really was kind of like ten stormtroopers were literally, I was having to move in and out so they could all get shots. He just didn't care. Like, just defend, 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 okay, now I'm going to double rest or whatever, and that was at the very end. So that was the one thing. Well, more of the missions are of the, like, if the mission lasts long enough, the Imperials win variety, as opposed to the the Rebels winning, right? This one was, too, like, he had actually won by holding out to a certain turn. I don't want to say it because I don't want to spoil it at all, because he didn't know what turn it was, and I didn't really know what turn it was. But what it what it actually does, unlike Descent, where you basically choose which way you're going, and then I think it's if the Overlord wins or if the players win, they get to decide which one they want to go to next. In this one, you actually have side missions, which are shuffled in depending on which characters you're playing. And you also have, like, story missions that are in there. And then any time that there's, like, not two story missions, you pull out another story mission out of this, like, mini shuffled card deck. And then you do, like, main mission, side mission, main mission, side mission. So the next time you do a side mission, the player always gets to choose which one he wants to go to, unless certain ones put another side mission out, and then he has to pick that one next. So you can kind of force the hand if you win as Imperials from some missions. So it's kind of like a variation on Descent, but I actually like it better because it's not got that map that you have to look at, and it can be kind of confusing at points, or at least it was to me at points. Also, Star Wars is awesome. Ah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it, it is, and it's very flavorful. I felt like we quite enjoyed it. That one last mission, uh, I know I talked about it a lot, but that was just like, that, that was literally the only flaw in it that we found that was not something that was already in Descent. And in fact, it's a little bit better than Descent because they actually have, um, oh, in Descent you have one attack die that you always roll regardless of anything else that you're doing, and you always have to roll that. So a little bit better what they've done is that there's two different defense dice, and when you roll the better defense dice, it actually has a miss on it. So regardless of whatever your opponent rolls, they will miss and you don't take any damage from it. And I really like that because the defense dice, you know, those are going to vary a lot less than, like, the ranged or the melee dice. So it really frees them up to do that. And I think that was a really smart change. But, you know, it's essentially kind of the same. But if you have the worst defense dice, you actually don't have, if I remember right, I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure, you don't actually have the miss on it. So, you know, if your defenses are bad enough, they, they won't ever miss on you. But you you can still absorb damage from it. Okay, now that was Imperial Assault, obviously from FFG. I also recently got around to playing Five Tribes from Days of Wonder. This was one of the hot things starting back at Gen Con. This game involves a... You have a 16 by 16 grid, and you start with three meeples on each grid. And there are five different... Sorry, on each spot on the grid. There are five different colors of meeple. And on each turn, what you're going to do is you pick a square... You pick up all of the meeples on that square and you trail them across adjacent squares until you drop off your last one. The last meeple you drop off has to match the color of a meeple that's already there. Then you pick up those meeples and you get some sort of effect based on how many meeples you picked up and what color they were. The red meeples are assassins and can kill other meeples and the blue meeples are... Builders, they get you money, or money is victory points, so you, you get money and you don't usually use all of it, so it's just a pile of victory points sitting around. The green meeples are merchants, and they let you collect resource cards, which are 
basically end up being a victory victory points based on set collections and the yellow ones are uh, are worth small amounts of victory points each but then a lot more victory points if you have more of them than anybody else and the whites are worth some victory points but they can kind of be used as currency and summon these special gin tiles that are off on the side plus if you clear out a square then you get to put one of your camels on that square and you get the victory points that the square is worth at the end of the game now I had been very skittish about five tribes because there is absolutely the ability in that game to sit down and kind of look at every single space and be, okay, what could I do if I ended on this space? And is there another space that exists such that I could start at this space and have the line end here? And is there some way I can maximize and get this or that? And, you know, some people, including me, can really want to analyze things like that heavily. And so I had been concerned that I'm going to sit down at this game and just want to get way too much into everything. But that actually ended up not really being a problem. I was able to have fun with the game and do well at the game just by kind of looking at a couple of the most obvious squares and seeing whether or not there was some way I could pull off the, you know, picking up three meeples of one color or clearing out one square and then just using the assassin to finish off the tile next to it and grabbing two at the same time. So it certainly is is possible. If, if you absolutely positively have got to fully plan everything out, I think this game is going to end up... It may not be miserable for you, but it's going to be miserable for everybody else. But I do think that it is, it's a fun game. And it is entirely possible to play the game, even if you have inclinations like that, without letting that overcome you. I guess I should note that there are, amongst the resource cards, there are, for reasons I am not quite sure, there are cards that are slave cards and that you can use to... They substitute for other things. You can add them in with different meeples. There are people who find it offensive that there are just for no apparent reason these slave cards. And I mean, I don't. There's nothing flavor-wise about them that means that that's what they'd be. That I'm not sure why on earth that's what they chose to call them. But be advised if you're the sort who might find that offensive. That that is in there. So heads up. That is five tribes from Days of Wonder. Another. Uh, sort of newish, hot sort of game uh, on the, the cheap card game side of it is called Red 7 from Asmati. And this one, uh, there's not a Gen Con vintage, but I know at, at BGG Con, this got a lot of play. And Red 7 is a card game with 49 cards. There are seven colors following the spectrum, and they are numbered from 1 to 7. So each card is unique. And you start the game with seven cards in your hand, and the object of the game is to not lose. On each of your turns, you need to not lose, and then whoever's left at the end wins. And so what will happen is that each color defines a certain win condition. And so what you will do at the start of your turn, you will almost certainly not be winning. And so what you have to do is by the end of your turn, you have to be winning or else you lose the game. And the way that you 
you know, move yourself to be winning is to either play a card into your palette. You start with one, in addition to your seven cards in hand, you start with one random card in your palette. So you can either play a card to your palette that makes you the winner, or you can discard a card out of your hand into the middle to what's called, the, I think they call that the canvas, and that changes the win condition, or you can do both. Either way, if you don't get yourself to be winning by the end of your turn, you're out of the game. So at the start of the game, red is what the default win condition, and red is just high card wins. And there's always a tiebreaker for everything because all of the different colors are ranked in Roy G. Biv order. So the single highest card is the red seven, and the single lowest card is the violet one. And then that just serves as a tiebreaker for everything, if you've got out the rule that says most even cards, and there's two people who have two even cards, well, whoever has the high card of that, that's going to be the, the tiebreaker, so then they they have the winning hand. I don't know if if maybe over the... I mean, I've played multiple games, you know, because it's a fast game, so you can play a bunch in a row. There were some other players who really liked it and who thought it was a, a really quite strategic experience for the sort of card game it was. I felt like it was not very strategic. I felt that on most of my turns, I mean, and granted, I was never the guy who started with a seven face up, so I was always scrambling, you know, in every single one of these games. But I felt that on most of my turns, I would look at my hand. I would often only have one possible play to not lose, or I'd have kind of two possible plays and... One of them was clearly better. There were only a couple of times I felt like I had any sort of real decision when I was playing the game. And so while this one has, I think, garnered uh, a decent amount of positive attention, it was not one that impressed me when I played it. And that was that was Red 7 from Asmati. Now, I know, Mike, that one of your really hot things that you were looking forward to, or maybe not really, I guess it is a hot thing, but you were just looking forward to it for, as a big thing for you near the end of this year, Mike, was the Babel expansion for Seven Wonders. I know you've got that. You've had the chance to play both aspects of it, I think now, and maybe you too, Jay. How has that gone? Did you just call it Babel? Yes. Okay. I've just never heard it pronounced that way. I might just be a ponce, I don't know. Well, I, I just, I've always heard it pronounced babble. Uh, I, it, whatever, it doesn't matter. Anyways, okay, the actual thing you asked. Mike, uh, you're babbling. Yes, yes I am. But when is that not true? So, babble actually is two different expansions. They're both babble themed but they do different things. I actually have only had a chance to play one of the versions of the expansion, or one of the expansions, I guess. The one that I played is where you're actually building the kind of literal ba- uh, Tower of Babel. What they actually advise you do is play each of the expansions separately from each other, and then later play them together and with any other expansions that you so desire to do, do so. So I haven't gotten a, pl- a chance to play the second one yet, but I have played the first one, which is the Babel Tower. Uh, essentially what happens is the exact same setup. You get three tiles that are essentially pie-shaped, and then what happens 
is there's a board, and the board has a number of spaces, either three or four, or actually maybe three or five, depending on the number of players. And the idea is, during your turn, instead of playing a card, or actually, if you, you have to discard a card to do it, you can play your piece to the Babel board. And it actually affects everybody's boards. So they almost always have some kind of universal effect. So it might make it so that like everybody can buy from the neighbors for one for refined resources, or it might make whenever you take a negative victory point token, you actually take two negative victory point tokens. It might make it so that you actually take down from what you normally wouldn't take. So if you normally would take a three for a military victory, you actually take a... Um, you only take a, a one. Which, obviously, those are pretty big. And the way that you actually get rid of them is when they go around in a certain order, like clockwise or counterclockwise, just depending on how you're playing. Or no, I guess it's always clockwise, but it doesn't really matter. Anyways, they go around in a certain order, and when one goes, when there's not room for another one, you place it on top of the last one, or the first one that was played. And then once you do that, the other one stops acting, and obviously the one you played is still going. And so that's the way you get rid of them. And then you also get bonus points at the end of the game for each one that you've played. Uh, so I think it's 3, 5, 10? Something like 2, 5, 10. Yeah, 2, 5, 10, that's right. So you get 2 points if you play 1, 5 if you play 2, 10 if you play 3. And, and that's really pretty much it. They're just going to replace your plays at certain points. I thought... With the limited experience that I've had with it, I thought it was that portion was actually a pretty interesting expansion. I would say that it's probably not as good as Leaders, which is one of my favorite expansions of all time for any game. Um, but it's definitely better than Cities, which had a lot of components that I didn't like. I didn't think added really all that much to Seven Wonders and actually added a couple of annoying things. The other one that I have not played, it's like the construction of Babel as well, but more kind of mundane things, but at the same time, I, I don't know, uh, you know, different works that they're trying to put together. And you can either participate or not participate. And there's a number of participation counters equal to the number of players minus one. And at the end of the age, if all of the participation counters have been taken, you get a reward if you participated equal to the number of tokens that you have. If you have not participated, then you get a penalty depending on, I think, just not participating, right? Was, was it a flat? I can't remember. It's been a while since I wrote those rules. Yeah, and it's if you don't participate and it fails. Right. If you don't participate and it fails. So, you know, there's a double incentive. And the rewards are generally good enough you'd almost always want to participate. And if nobody participates, then everybody gets that penalty. Because I've not gotten the chance to play it. Looking it over, it seems fine. I don't know that you actually would want to add Babel and that, because that seems like a lot of choices that you're now splitting your cards instead of actually playing the cards. But yeah, so but generally I think it's definitely worth it, if it, even if it's just for the tower portion alone. Now, you guys played with me. What did you guys think? Yeah, I guess, yeah, we just had the the one game I was thinking you had, you'd probably gotten to play it more since then, since I know you were so pumped about it. But yeah, we just played with the the tower portion. I was surprised at how little it seemed to shake the thing up, which I think is ultimately a good thing, because people had spoken of this expansion as if it was this huge earth-shaking change to everything, and to me, that can, that can be good, but that can be bad, especially for a game like Seven Wonders, where, to me, 
part of the point and draw of the game is that it's a pretty straightforward sort of thing. It also, by adding in the Babel, you're eliminating the whole you can completely ignore the people who aren't to your left and right, which is one of the reasons why you can play it with seven people and it doesn't get any slower. But in this case, I I say I think it was a positive that it didn't feel like it shook that stuff up that much because at the same time that it didn't feel like it was adding a bunch of extra complexity to the thing, it also was a game where I was able to deploy my Babel tiles in a significant way in the game. I was able to look at my Wonder Board, and there's drafting for the Babel tiles, and I was able to choose an early one that I thought would help me because I knew I was going to need science for all of my stages, and so I was able to choose a tile that made science cheaper, and then I was able to combine that with a commerce building to let me get it for free for a while, and that worked out pretty well. And then, ended up, if I'm recalling correctly, and correct me if I'm not, I ended up winning at the end because I was able to swoop in and in the last round, I got ahead on military, and I was able to build my last tile, which traded out, I think, one that you had put down, Mike, which made the penalties for losing military less, and replaced it with one that made the bonuses for winning more. So that really ended up being a, a big point swing. So I think that's a, a big positive, that it added some strategic depth in like that, without really feeling like it was adding a bunch of extra complication. What did you think about it, Jay? I liked it. It is an interesting mechanic. I mean, as Mike said, I do worry, without having done it, of trying to put both in, because between with both of those and trying to build out your wonder, you've suddenly got a lot more demands on what to do with your cards that aren't playing them for their normal thing. I like that it does add an interesting component to the game that does affect everyone that you have to pay more attention to. Though it would be interesting to see it, as you said, with six or seven players of, is that now too much interaction with the wider universe? I I just don't know. Yeah, not just the wider universe, but possibly five different tiles to keep track of, I think. But right. So that was, uh, I'm just going to stick with my Babel pronunciation, expansion for Seven Wonders. Another one I've played recently is Empire Engine from AEG. This is another one of the five-minute funline games that comes in what I think of as the love letter size pouch which I, I do have to say that if it fits in there, I like the games better when they're in the little pouch than they were in the slightly bigger box. I don't know why. It's more distinctive, maybe. It certainly makes it harder to stack them on a shelf. I, I agree. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Empire Engine is a... I guess, again, and somewhat like Sail to India, but even more stripped down, a Euro-style game with a very, very limited component quality in there. Uh, not limited component quality, limited component quantity, and therefore a, a very low price point. In this one, you have two gears, 
two main gears that each have four actions on them, and what you're going to do each turn is play your other controlling gears each down. One defaults to one revolution, one defaults to two revolutions, and what you have to do each turn is choose which, how much you're going to spin each of your gears, just sticking with the one or the two, or you have the option to expend additional resources to lock one of your gears in place, changing the, the one to a zero, or spin it three turns by turning the two into a, a three, and when you're doing this, the actions you're taking are are fairly straightforward. You can either you have three different resources, goods, soldiers, and inventions, and you have just baseline production actions. I make two goods, I make two soldiers, or I score one invention. And then you have the second line of actions, which is I attack or I defend. If you attack and it's not defended, you steal from the other guy and put it in your score pile. If you attack and it is defended, you get nothing and they score a soldier from the stock. And then if you choose one of these, the last set of options, which is export and salvage, and you don't get attacked, or I'm sorry, if you don't get successfully attacked, then you can more directly score points, including the the export, which lets you take all of the goods tokens that you have and score them all at once. And there are deliberate balancing sorts of things that they're built into the gears. The defense action, for example, is on the same gear as the export, so you can't defend your export. Rather, what you have to do for a lot of these is time things by looking at what the players to your left and your right are doing and trying to figure out, has my opponent left himself, you know, or the people, you know, my opponents, I guess, because it's the person to your left and your person to your right, unless you're playing two players, you know, left, you know, him or herself in a position where they can't attack me, or it would be very painful for them to attack me, and maybe this is a good time to try to go for that export, you know, can I go for the big, produce another two goods, and then export six? How can you avoid being left with no soldiers so that the people to your left and right know that they're safe from you. It plays in eight or nine turns. You can choose to play it longer if you want. You can accomplish it, I think, in the sort of five or ten minute fun category if you're pretty loose about it. If you play the rules strictly, then each person has to put one gear down at a time and then it rotates back around and everybody... So you can see which gear your opponent chose to put down first, whether or not they chose at that time to pay the extra cube to modify it and try to guess what they might be doing and see what the options are. If you don't do that, if everybody just kind of puts down their two gears like they want to do without really looking at anybody else and you just trust people not to be jerks about it, then it can play pretty quickly and it's, it's pretty light. If you choose to play it the full out way, it ceases to be a five or ten minute fun game. Now you're going through all of these computations. It's not going to get done in five or ten minutes. Certainly not five minutes. And it's honestly less fun, which is not great because it wasn't a super amount of fun even playing it. It relatively lighthearted. It's it's a great idea, and. I was really curious to play it, and I, I thought it would end up playing better, but there just there just did not seem to be a lot of draw to it. And I know, I mean, you guys can say what you thought about it, but I, I played it with several groups, and it didn't really seem to 
catch anybody, you, you know, light that fire in their eyes. We're like, ooh, this is the sort of thing that we want to sit down and, and play again. So what what did you guys think? The limited choice really, honestly, pretty annoyed me. Uh, and it's not just that you have to use the cards to say how you rotate. It's that you have to use two different cards. And I understand that someone would say, well, that's the strategy of it. But to me, that was kind of annoying. And there wasn't enough interesting interaction to really make I me. Mean, I guess you could really kind of deep math it or whatever and try and figure out. But that also makes me think that this could possibly be a solved game, that you could always figure out a way that you would just either win or tie. I might be wrong about that, but that's kind of how it felt. It just attacking people wasn't exciting. We started running out of components, which was really annoying. It just took too long for how what style of game it was. I thought so. Yeah, I, I really did not like that game. That is something. There are. I mean, I know part of the point is that there are limited components, but you're supposed to be able to play it with the limited components. There are not enough yellow cubes in the game. There just aren't. You make and score too many goods cubes. I think there's even numbers of red and blue and yellow, and there's plenty of the blue invention cubes, at least in the the games that I've played. And Blue, you don't accumulate that much. Red are coming in and out, but the yellow are almost purely accumulated, and they're accumulated very quickly. Yeah, well, I think, in fact, the, the yellow are players versus stock purely accumulated because... The only way that you lose a yellow is because somebody else just took it from you and scored it. And every time you take that produce action, you generate two of them. But yeah, so the, I think if you're playing with three or four players, especially four, you're always going to run out of yellow cubes. You have to, to pull in something else to use as the, the score for that, which I don't know, would have like ruined the $10 price point, you know, to have another eight goods cubes. Well, I think part of the thing was it's got an equal number of cubes, right, of all the three different colors. Yeah. Maybe you had different experience in your other games, but it didn't feel like it needed nearly as many red cubes as it had. There's no reason to stockpile soldiers, other than maybe you want to try to attack a couple turns, but that gets real hard. You usually don't have more than, say, three in a pile, because once you have that many, you start to attack, and then that sends them back to the stock. You can accumulate red cubes as well, but... Like Jay said, I think it's the inventions, the blue ones in particular, that you only ever get one of those at a time. It's just the, I take the invent action, I score one, that's it. Or if you grab one off the salvage. Oh, and the scoring, I guess I should specify, the scoring at the end of the game is whoever has the most cubes plus three victory points for each of the three colors that you are in the lead for. Ties both players or all three players or whatever get those three points. So that's the end of game scoring. But I guess, other than component quantity, what did you think of it, Jay? I came into it expecting a light, don't have to think too much about a game. And that was sort of how I played it. And at the end of the game, I sort of felt like it was more complicated than that. But it also was not a game I was interested in actually putting the time in to think about. (laughs) Basically, I feel like it missed that mark of the 5-10 to minute easy fun game, and it's not good enough outside of that area. Yeah, I think if you're in the sort of micro-game Euro thing, I'd probably just rather go back to Sail to India, so as far as that particular subgenre. Although I have not played the tiny epic 
game, so maybe those hit it better. I don't know. That's Empire Engine from AEG. Okay, a game I have not played, but I think both of you guys have played is Lagoons. So tell us about that, Jay. That's one I'm not not sure how quite to explain it. It's enough outside. So basically, the way it works is it's it's almost worker placement in that. It's a board that is built with hex tiles, and you've got a couple of druids that are that are little two-sided discs, and so the two sides are they can act this turn, or they have acted and they're therefore exhausted. And then you've got the bag of more tiles to go. And basically, the game, the way the game works is on your turn, you almost assuredly want to one of the available actions is explore. You can do Explore once a turn. You really want to be doing Explore every turn if you can. And Explore is to take a tile out of the bag, look at the two sides of it, and pick one of the two sides to slot in from whichever worker you were exploring with. In that way, the board slowly grows out. There are three colors, red, yellow, and blue. And so each tile is going to have two of those three colors on the different sides. So you might pull out a red-yellow tile. And then each tile also has on each side a different ability. If you have a guy on a tile, you can use that ability with any of your guys on the board, for the most part. There's also, you have an uber worker, and some of the actions can only be taken by the uber worker. Also, by exploring, you also get little temporary tokens of the given color. What you want to be doing to get points, though, is one of the available actions is if your guy is on a tile, he can try to, I believe the term was unravel, where he takes his action, he comes back to your worker pool, he's no longer on the board, and the tile comes back to your pool, comes to your score pile. However, to do that, you have to have enough of the right type of energy. And there's, so there's a rock, paper, scissors thing going on where, for instance, if you want to do this to a red tile, to score the red tile, you have to have three yellow energy. And you can do that either by having dudes out on yellow tiles or by expending the temporary yellow things. So that's how it goes. You play until the bag is out of tiles. Once that happens, you now look at the board to figure out what is the scoring color. So the scoring color is whichever color it has the most tiles still left on the board. Tiles that you have scored that are not that color are worth two points, and then the temporary resource that is that color is worth one point. So you just total up points and figure out who won. All of the games we played were three players, which often ended up with basically each player ended up getting a color that they were gunning for, such that the end of the game was, did my color win, therefore I win. So it would be interesting to play it with two or four to see how that changes the dynamics some. It's an interesting worker placement area control type game, I guess. I don't know, Mike, do you have anything else to add? Did I forget anything important? Not really. I mean, that, that was most of it. The big thing to me is that because a lot of the stuff that you're doing, you're not actually necessarily tying yourself to a color early in the game. If you un, if you unwind or whatever the uh, oh, a certain color of tile, 
all you're betting on is that that tile is not going to win. It's not going to be the most numerous. So you can actually adjust your strategy mid-game, depending on how everything is going. So yeah, I, I really like that. I thought it was pretty good. I want to play more of that game, honestly. Okay. I enjoyed it. It was a very interesting, very different feel of game than anything else I'm aware of. I would also say that um, they actually do have expansions, because this was a Kickstarter game, but they're not actually out in uh, being published yet. I'm pretty sure you got them already if you are on Kickstarter, but I got this at the local game store, so I don't have those expansions yet. And it's one of those games that feels like it actually benefit a lot from expansions. Okay. That was Lagoons from, what is it, Three Hairs? Was that the company that did that? Um, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sorry if I'm getting that wrong. The next one up for me is Black Fleet from Asmodee, or I guess we should just call them the Mothership now. <laughs> they just own everyone. This is a, I guess, a, a Buccaneer-themed game. So Pirates, along with Zombies, popular generally, not so much my cup of tea, but I ended up quite liking this game. In Black Fleet, you are a two-ship fleet, I guess. You have a merchant ship, and you have a pirate ship. If you are the Black Fleet, then you get if you get randomly get one of the colors, and whoever the Black Fleet is gets to be the first player. You have a hand of two ship cards, and then you can draw some fortune cards, and or, or two movement cards, and then you can draw a fortune card. And each of these movement cards has three values on it. It has a movement distance for your merchant ship, it has a movement distance for your pirate ship, and it has a movement distance for one of the two navy ships that are on the board. So with four players, there will be four merchant ships, four pirate ships, two navy ships. Each ship gets one action. Your pirate ship, when it's next to a merchant ship, can attack the merchant ship. If it's got goods on it, it takes the goods. If it takes the last good, or if the merchant ship is empty, then it sinks it. You get a couple of doubloons just for attacking. If you steal a good, you can go bury the treasure and get more doubloons. If your ships sink, they just respawn. If your merchant ship sinks, it just respawns next turn at the port of your choice. If your pirate ship gets sunk, it respawns in at one of the edge of the boards at the start of your next turn, one of your choice, or... Uh, not, I guess three of the four corners have a spot for the pirate ships to come in. How do your pirate ships get sunk? Well, the navy ships, of course. And then the, the fortune cards will do things like maybe let you move one or some of your, you know, one or more of your ships extra or do something cute like tidal wave lets, you know, your pirate ship flow over an island and so you can move past that. While your pirate ships are trying to sink things, your merchant ships are going back and forth between some of the five ports on the edge. And it's just a very simple, there are three spots for cubes on my merchant ship. When I go to a port, I can fill up those three spots. I get to a point that unloads it. It tells me how much money I get for that. What do you do with this doubloons? You have five cards that you can unlock. They form a nice little picture all together on the back. For a four-player game, they're about twice as many, I think as you would need in a particular game, and they're randomly dealt out. You have a 5, 8, 11, 14, and then a 10, which is your end game card. But those first four cards, when you pay to flip them over, give you some sort of special ability. The 5 has something that has to do with your pirate ship, the 8 is something that has to do with your merchant ship, and then the 11 and 14 can be really fancy things. So 
you might get one that lets you uh, pick one of your ships every turn and move it an extra two, or get one that lets you swap of your navy ship for the turn with your pirate ship, which, I'll tell you what, uh, that's a, a sick amount of maneuverability for, for hitting other people. And then once you've accumulated enough, you unlock all those earlier cards, and then you can pay 10 to unlock your endgame card, which is the, like, I have so much money, here's my pretty wife and villa that I'm retiring to. <laughs> Everybody will get an even number of turns. If only one player has bought that card when the game ends, then they win. If more than one player has bought that, then the winner is whichever one of them has the most money left over. This was pretty fast-paced. It was pretty lighthearted. Your ships are getting blown up. They're coming back. The fact that everything just respawns without any real consequences means that there's not too much uh, angst about whether or not your ship's going to get sunk. You can just pop it off, and, and who cares? I guess it would be... Yeah, so, sometimes you can have an extended period of times where the Navy's ships are just so out of position that they can't affect anything, or one of them gets dropped down like right at one of the pirate ship entrances, which means all the pirate ships just come on from way far away from where the, the Navy ships are. But overall, it was a surprising amount of fun. That was Black Fleet from Asmodee. The last thing I have is Scoville from Tasty Minstrel. Scoville is a pepper-growing game. In Scoville, on each of you is a farmer, and most of the board is taken up with a communal pepper field, and your farmers will be moving around that field as the game goes on. On each turn, there's there's an auction for turn order, and you may want to go first, or you may want to go last. And so what you you do is, in turn order, you pick a card that gives you more peppers for your stash, then you have to plant a pepper, and everybody's planting the peppers in these communal in this communal field, and it has to be adjacent to an existing pepper. Then, in reverse turn order, players harvest, and you definitely want to go first in each of these phases. So there, that's why there are advantages to going last. Or if you're fourth in turn order, you do your planting last. And then you immediately get to do harvesting. And the reason why the, the turn order really matters for harvesting is because you are literally moving your farmer several spaces across the field. And every space that you move, if there's a pepper on your left and a pepper on your right, then you get to harvest a pepper that's a crossbreed of the two that you just passed. At the beginning of the game, the base peppers are red and blue and yellow. So if you walk between two of the same color, you get two of that color. But if you walk between the yellow and the blue, you get a green pepper. If you walk between the yellow and the red, you get an orange pepper. That sort of thing. And then from there, there are fancier peppers that are brown and black and white, and then a ghost pepper that's transparent. And then you do the fulfillment phase, and you can get a small number of victory points and then some money, which you the money is used for bidding for turn order and some victory points at the end of the game, but primarily just bidding for turn order. You can get some money and maybe some other peppers by going to the market and filling some orders that are over there on the left side of the board. You also have recipes over on the right side of the board, a random set of cards for both of these, and the recipes are just 
I put together a recipe of peppers that I've collected and, and get victory points. Additionally, there are victory points to be had for being first two or three players who plant a particular type of advanced pepper. So it's only two victory points if you're one of the three first players to plant a purple or orange or green pepper, but the first player who plants a, plants a ghost pepper gets 12, which is a lot. I thought that this one was okay. I think part of the problem maybe for me is that part of the point was the whole you're placing the pepper out there for everybody and you have to figure out what the best way to do that was, but there's a mild bit of frustration with the whole, like, I'm putting a pepper out and there's a good chance that I'm not going to be the one who actually gets to take advantage of this. It was it was really hard to generate some of the fancier peppers because nobody really wanted to put them out in a combination unless you were in a position to immediately be able to harvest it yourself for fear that somebody else was going to get it. And that sort of interaction with the crossbreeding was kind of the main distinction of this game, right? Some of the other stuff about, you know, filling orders and, and the recipes is fairly standard Euro fare. So there wasn't anything wrong with Scoville, but it, it kind of failed to light that fire with me to make me, you know, go back and and give it another play. But I, I could see other people uh, being charmed by it. And, you know, okay, it's maybe it's not a terribly unique thing because it's still, you know, some sort of farming and growing stuff. But hey, peppers, that's different from wheat, right? So that's at least a bit of a different theme. So pluses for that. I think that's all the game that we had on tap today. Did you guys have any final commentary? Shout out to some geek-related thing that you uh, you know want people to be aware of? No, not not really. The only thing I can think of is I don't know if you saw the Oatmeal has a card game on Kickstarter right now, which looks hilarious. The what? Do you know the website, the Oatmeal? Oh no. That's what I thought you said, the oatmeal, and I'm like, right. I don't know oh, what that means. Oh, right, you don't have a sense of humor. You will probably <laughs> not enjoy the game. I believe the game is called Exploding Cat. The goal of the game is to not get an exploding cat because you lose when you get an exploding cat. It's an exploding cat, not an exploding kitten. You're right, it is an exploding kitten. Aha! There was some slightly morbid scintilla of communal thought that mm. I managed to pick up somewhere. Who knew? Who knew? I don't know. I guess since I complained about it in a past thing, I should note that I, over all the travel I had to do in uh, late November through December, I actually reactivated my Marvel Unlimited, and it has it has magically fixed when I reactivated it. Hooray! What was it doing? You can download in the an app format up to 12 issues and that's a pretty healthy amount for like sitting around without having to be on a constant wireless connection that's draining your battery or to load up and then you know read some at lunch or something like that what had happened to me was that it was glitching so every once in a while when i would remove a comic from my read offline library you wouldn't register it yeah it it wouldn't be there, but it would be saying the slot was full. And so by the time I got to the the end of my initial trial period with it, 
I had like three read offline slots and that just was not functional. But I'm like, well, let's let's give it another try. And I had to, like I said, I knew I was going to be sitting around a lot. I was traveling a lot. It lets me, it's a lot easier to bring my iPod and then download comics than to bring two weeks worth of books on a trip. Most definitely. That's why I read on my iPad mini. <laughs> I do very little physical anymore. And I read a lot of comics. <laughs> well, yeah, and it, it just, for me, not somebody who's like, oh, I want to have the most recent thing, and then somebody for whom it's just, for me, not worth it to even pay the individual $2 or more price for digital comics, but just the whole $10 a month or $70 for a whole year. $2. Maybe if you get a really good sale. They're same as cover price. So right now they range between 3 and 5 a piece. When you're within the Marvel Unlimited app, you have the option to buy individual issues if oh, you right. want. And it seems like maybe it's just because they're the old ones. I, I don't know. They I, are. Uh, yeah. Th- that's, that's what it is. Because even on Comixology, which is where I read, because that's where you get all the new stuff. Sure. It typically depreciates as it gets older. Okay. Yeah. So if you remember, my, my sort of quest was like, read all the X stuff. And I am now just finished AVX. So that's the middle of 2012 or something like that. I thought it was newer than that. I thought that was 2013 or 14. I might be wrong. Maybe I'm off by a year, but... But I think it's 2013. I've just finished that up. I know this is the exact opposite of what you would do, which is like, you want me to do, which is like, go read Hawkeye. Hawkeye is amazing. I know, I know. Hawkeye is amazing. Counter-argument, he's a guy with a bow. Counter-argument, that doesn't matter that comic's really not about him being a superhero and that's why it's amazing yeah that does kind of not matter with the exception of aquaman who is just there's no saving the lameness that is aquaman you should read jeff john's aquaman it is also very good is that a new thing or is that back when they're like we're gonna make him dark no. by cutting off his no, hand that's, that's like three years ago the cutting off his hand is like late 90s I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you can really induce me to read Aquaman. That might just be a lost cause. But Well, hey, Winter Soldier was Bucky. I mean, anything can happen. And you're catching up just in time for them to kind of reset the world for Marvel, because that's what they're doing next summer. Or this summer. This summer. The thing that kind of struck me right is, so, okay, I X books are the things I've done, right? And there was a time when X was just one book, or I guess for my relevant life, it was always really two because I mean New Mutants has been around since before I would you know knew what a comic book was. But right, that's exploded and been popular and and the X Men are always the or at least historically are right they're like they're the hated and feared side. They're they're always prejudiced against them. They're always hiding. They're always sneaking around. And on the complete opposite end of that, you have the Fantastic Four who are sort of the within universe world beaters. Everybody knows who they are. They're super popular. They save the planet from Galactus. They, you know, they do all these things, but they're also a book that out of story, like they've never exploded. There are a thousand Avengers books. There are a thousand X-Men books. There's just one Fantastic Four book or FF or, you know, Forward Foundation. I know they, yeah, that one just got canceled. Oh, okay. I'll say I know they've shifted it up or something, but like... Well, there's probably a part that you're not catching here. I don't know how much you pay attention to things. You may not want to care about Marvel anymore, because there won't be any mutants for probably a long time, because of the Fox deal, and Fox just won't sell them back the mutants. 
so they're switching it all over to Inhumans, which is another in in continuity thing. But basically, they had a big event so that they can replace the mutants with that, and they probably won't even be around after the big world reset. I will have to go read whatever this announcement is about. I know what you're talking about with the movie rights because before Disney bought Marvel. Marvel, yeah, Fox owns the movie rights to the X-Men, basically. And yep. Sony owns the movie rights to Spider-Man. And yes. Fantastic Four is also something they won't sell, and it's just not selling well anyway, so they're also kind of not publishing them. It's not anything that they've come out and announced. It's just we understand what's happening because we're seeing what's happening, what they're making and what they're not making. I think there is definitely incentive for some of the stuff for Marvel, especially... Not just in the comics, but some of the sort of secondary things that they do. Like if, you know, Marvel Universe Live, which is something you're probably only aware of if you have children or that, where. Or if you watch t- television commercials too much. Oh, I don't watch television with commercials. It's, it was hilarious. A couple of months ago, when my mother in law was visiting, we had, because she was here, the actual TV on an actual broadcast network was on and ended up staying on it in a while with with Benjamin, my four-year-old, watching, because on Saturday, one of these channels, and do, there are so many broadcast channels now with HD and the way they've divided the spectrum up, but so there's a lot of them that show old TV shows, and whatever one of these ones is has, like, Super Saturdays, and so their Saturday night lineup includes an hour of the 60s Batman series, like two episodes of that, or maybe it's two hours over four episodes. They show an episode of the 70s Wonder Woman. I think it was in the 70s, the Linda Carter one. Uh, 70s. And Wonder Woman is my is, is Benjamin's favorite superhero, and we put these on, and it'll stop the show and go to commercial, and Benjamin is uncomprehending. He does not understand, and he's like, why'd you turn my show off? <laughs> because because I realized like this is really the first time, other than me putting on a football game, which he just is not going to pay attention to. That's the only time he'd ever been watching a show that had a commercial, because we just don't consume television like that. Well, I mean, I I watch Hulu, even Hulu Plus has ads. That's how I watch broadcast television anymore, even though I have access to broadcast television. But yeah, that's true. Yeah, so is this new iteration of Secret Wars, that's what the thing you're talking about? Correct. Okay, I will have to look at that and see how much I roll my eyes. You'll probably roll your eyes pretty heavily. A lot of my friends who are into comics are not following Marvel anymore because of it. I don't know how fair or not that is. I think it looks pretty cool. But Well, I guess my usual thought when you have sort of world-shaking sorts of things is that a lot of times they don't matter. The other thing is that... This will matter. Well, I guess this is why they have the, they, they like released a Secret Wars omnibus. The original Secret Wars series were terrible. They were awful. They were just made to sell toys. That's all they yes. were there for. You're right. They were literally just made to sell toys. And they're also kind of the fairy... You know what? They do this because people like it. So let's be clear. There's obviously a lot of people who like this sort of thing. But to me, it's it's the worst sort of just come up with an excuse to have random people fight each other. That's one of those things. It's hard for me to really hold it against the company as much as I... That's not for me. That's not for most comic book readers, honestly. And yet they sell, so how do you blame them for making them? Because it's more complicated than that. A lot of these books also have alternate covers, 
and you have the comic shops have to order so many to be able to get the alternate covers, and they put them on such a tight time frame, especially with local event. Uh, sorry, the recent events that they a lot of times are just guessing. So a lot of times they end up with giant stocks if they guess wrong, or they sell. They end up not being able to sell things because they guessed under. So that, a lot of times that's what actually goes into it. Not saying that it's not necessarily popular, but that's why it gets inflated. It's a really weird business. Which is especially strange to me because to some extent, comics are a really weird business that make almost no money in and of themselves, but to some extent primarily exist to generate IP for other media. Now, well, the, the creators don't look at it that way. But the company also realizes, because Disney is used to working with creatives, so they're like, you know what, you can go play, you're self-sufficient, you're making money, it's not like you're not profitable. Yeah. You're not as profitable as other things, and the side benefit of us doing, letting you do whatever you want to do is that we get all this cool new IP. If you do a bunch of lifty little indie stuff that does okay, okay, that's fine, and hey, that one in ten chance that that random idea you had ends up being super popular, hey, a new movie. And sometimes the random thing turns out to be Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy was amazing. What are you talking about? No, no, that's what I'm saying, but that yes, was... but a year ago, two years ago, that was a wild, crazy bet. So that was your, what, half-hour-long comic book addendum mm. to this... But how long do you want to go? Because I can go for a few hours. <laughs> that was the, okay, now we're done, so... <laughs> well, two recommendations, if you have that Marvel account... The stuff after One New Day, Brand New Day, that Spider-Man run on that whole thing is amazing. It's really, really good, if you like Spider-Man at all. What year is that? It would probably be 2010. Okay. Uh, 2010, 2011. Yeah, if if they identify it as a quote-unquote comic event, I don't know how they distinguish what is or isn't. If it's a comic event, then there's actually a section when you're you can look at lists by title, you can look by creator, you can search right, by no, character. No, this, this will all be Amazing Spider-Man, because what they did is, instead of putting out three or four different Spider-Man books, they actually put out one Spider-Man book like three times a month. Which doesn't matter for you, because you're just reading them however you want, whenever yeah. reading through. The, the whole thing has actually been Amazing Spider-Man until it went to Superior Spider-Man, which is also awesome. If you like Wonder Woman, I would heavily recommend the Brian Azzarello run that just finished. There's not necessarily a easy way to get it, like like the Marvel Direct version, but you can get it in graphic novel form pretty cheap. I was about to say, you know, like they don't have DC Comics on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, I yet. I would imagine that at some point DC would have a product like that. Yeah, I I have so far refrained from buying Wonder Woman graphic novels for Benjamin, given that he can't read them. And it's, well, I, oh, if, if it's his, then yeah. It's I his you favorite. Yeah, no, that's his favorite character. And it's it's actually very hard to read a comic book to somebody. No, those aren't really for him anyways. No, no, no. No, they aren't. They aren't. But it's, I, I have to say, if you want to get me to kind of extraneously buy something, a very good way to attack that is to have it be something that piques my interest in some sort of way, but is also in some sort of way... For Benjamin, Sophia's not really old enough to be interested in things yet. For example, uh, it's January, so Target resets their toy section, and so they do uh, some 
pretty good clearance things this month. So last week I spent two hundred dollars on Legos. Nice. Seems legit. I I probably would spend that if I had the chance. Well, yeah. So well, I mean, look, Legos are not cheap, but they had so quite awesome. a few. They had quite a few Legos at at the Target that's right by me on the day. Well, because they, I know what day they switch over to the higher level discount. So I went there on my lunch and while they were in the middle of doing it. So there was still a bunch of stuff there. So all the Legos that had made it to the clearance aisle, and not that that's a ton necessarily were half off. So I bought each of the eight different Star Wars Lego things that were over there, and I bought a police thing because at this particular moment, Benjamin says he wants to be a police officer when he grows up. I think it's because I said something about how police officers are like real-world superheroes, which then kind of confuses him when I'm listening to the Economist podcast and they're talking about (laughs) police brutality or something. (laughs) Is he not paying attention to the superheroes? Well, you know what? Um, he might like Miss Marvel, and I think that's old enough. It'd probably be on there now. The new Miss Marvel. The new Miss Marvel, I think up through about episode six. I haven't gotten there time-wise, but I... Oh, you know what? Also, you would probably like Daredevil, the current run with Mark Wade, because it's a partially it's about him being a lawyer, and She-Hulk, because that's all about her being a lawyer. That got canned earlier this year, right? Well, no. Well, he had planned for it to be a 12-issue run, and it didn't do well enough for them to get beyond that. So it's one of those politic things of, did it get canned, or was it just not successful to keep going? It didn't get renewed. Yeah. Well, I mean, they only only agreed to... It is kind of like television. They only agreed to so many. So, yeah. But it's a fantastic series. Okay. I think you'd like it. So, I'm going to try this again, because not that this isn't an interesting conversation for me, right. but God only knows for the listeners. So, that Let's is the go. end of the half-hour comic book addendum to this episode of Strange Assembly, mostly your tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit us on the web at strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there, or you can check us out on iTunes if you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you would rate or review us on iTunes. That helps other people discover the show. Actually, just subscribing to the podcast through iTunes helps people find the show on iTunes by making it more likely that iTunes includes it in a list somewhere. Strange, these things. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Strange Assembly. You can email me directly with your uh, comments and criticism and such. It's chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Mike Cook and Jay Earl, this is Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop comic reading. I mean, gaming. Both. Both. Reading comics while trying to play games. Yes. That is a good way to make the other people at the table hit you. Well, I mean, if you're playing against Chris, you've got plenty of time for it. I hate you with a burning fury, my man. <laughs> burning fury. Yep. Yes, I knew that. That's that's established.